First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, your word is what we need to hear. It is what we need to hear every day. It is what we need to hear now. And so, Father, we pray that in the next few minutes as we study your word that has been read for us and as we think about it, Father, would you, by your Holy Spirit's power, transform us and conform us to the image of Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to the book of Malachi? Uh, This is the 10th week in this 12-part series called God at the Mic, where we have been looking at one of the 12 minor prophets each week. And uh, today, again, we come to Malachi, or as some say, Malachi, uh, the Italian prophet. And... um, You may be thinking to yourself, you know, I know that Malachi is the last of the 12, and it is the last book in the Old Testament, so why are we studying it now instead of in a few weeks? And that is a good question. That's because next week we're going to cover the book of Micah, and we have some exciting updates to share with you about our Micah 6-8 ministry in the treehouse across the street from the church. And uh, then in a couple weeks, we will conclude this series by looking at the book of Zechariah on Palm Sunday. And of course, Zechariah contains a prophecy that was fulfilled on that first Palm Sunday as the Lord Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on the back uh, of a donkey. And so for those reasons, we're skipping to the end of the Old Testament today. We're coming to Malachi a little bit early. Uh, Malachi was written last out of these 12 books, probably somewhere between the middle to the end of the 5th century B.C. Uh, By this time, the people of God had already gone into exile and had come back. Uh, There was a remnant of the exiles, about 50,000 of them or so, that began to return 100 years before the book of Malachi was written. About 80 years before this book was written, God spoke through the prophets Haggai and Zechariah about the need to rebuild the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, and that had already been done. And so by the time of the writing of the book of Malachi, they had already been worshiping in that rebuilt temple for about two generations or so. Uh, They were back in their home country again, out of exile, and you would think that this would have been a spiritual high point for the people of God. But as we'll see in this book, that was not the case at all. Uh, The people of God had already grown complacent again. Uh, They were in many ways cynical and hard-hearted towards the Lord. They were involved in all kinds of sinful activities that Malachi points out as uh, we go along. But what really stood out to me as I studied the book of Malachi this week is The the position of this book uh, in our Bibles, coming as it does, as the end of the Old Testament, and we know that after the writing of Malachi, after he put his pen down, there was a period of about 400 years before the New Testament age of silence. 400 years where there was no prophecy, where there was no prophet, where the people of God were waiting 
And as I thought about that, I realized that we really are in the same position today. Of course, the Lord Jesus has already come, as Malachi foretold. But when we come to the end of our Bibles, we read the great promise that one day our Lord Jesus is coming again. And so the message of the book of Malachi was to get ready for the coming of the Lord. And if you think about it, that's the same message we need to hear today. We need to get ready for the Lord to come again. And so as we study this book together, there are three messages from God to us that are so very clear. And I love that even though, again, Malachi is going to point out uh, several uh, sin areas for them and sin areas for us, and we're going to come back to that. But, but, but I love that the first thing that God says to us in the book of Malachi, the way that the book opens is with this beautiful, simple message from God. God says to us simply, I love you. Look at verse 2 with me. The very first words out of the mouth of the prophet Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. The, the tense of the word love there in the original Hebrew refers to something that has an ongoing uh, ramification about it. It means really something like, I have always loved you and I will always love you. Maybe you're visiting today for the first time. Maybe you uh, are at church for the first time in a long time. And maybe that's the word that God really wants you to hear today more than anything else. He wants you to hear him saying to you, I have always loved you. It is a beautiful beginning to this book, but unfortunately it takes a bad turn in the very next phrase of verse two, because the people of God were evidently questioning the love of God. And so Malachi, after he says, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? The people of God were questioning. They were saying, really, God, you love us? Well, how do you love us? I don't really feel like you love us all that much. I don't really sense that. I don't really see the evidence of that. And so they were questioning. And you know, they weren't the last people in the world to ever question the love of God. And there are many of us, even today, that that's kind of our default mode. You know, whenever things kind of start to come off the rails a little bit in our life, whenever things start to not go so well, Whenever there's trials, whenever there's things that we really don't want to have happen in our life, that's kind of what we turn to. We begin to question the Lord. We begin to say, God, you know, what, what, what's this? If you really love me, why are you letting this happen in my life? Now, when we're thinking more clearly, we remember that God never promised us that we would never have problems in life or challenges in life, but he did promise us that he would love us through all of those challenges with a love that is unbreakable. You know, I was reading this week in my own time with the Lord in Paul's letter to the Romans in that wonderful chapter of Romans chapter 8. Paul talks about the love of God. Listen to what he says there. He said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is anybody thankful for that? And nothing can separate us 
from the love that God has for us in Jesus Christ. Maybe God just wants to reassure some of us today of the love he has for us, which is like super glue. It is a love that will never let us go. And friend, if you're here and you haven't experienced that love yet, when you do experience that love, it's a love of the God who made you that is stronger than any earthly love, and it is life-changing. And when you open your heart to that love that God has for you in Jesus, it'll be the turning point for you in your life. You know, over in chapter 3, even after talking to them about all the sins that they had committed, and we'll come back to that in a minute, God still says to them these words in chapter 3, verse 6 and 7. He says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers you've gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, In what way? Shall we return? God was saying, I don't change. And of course, God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But what he's really talking about here when he says, I don't change, he's saying, I don't change with regard to my commitment to you, with regard to my covenant that I have made with you. And he's saying, even though you have not had regard for the covenant, all the way back to your fathers, you've been disobeying, you've been disregarding my laws from the very beginning, and yet even still I haven't changed. Even still I'm holding on to you. And even at this moment, there was a remnant of God's people that God had preserved. And, and so, he, again, he's saying to them, even after all of, that you've done, all the sin that you've committed, if you will return to me, I will return to you. And friend, maybe that's the word that you need to hear today. Maybe you would say, you know, my walk with Christ hasn't been what it has been in the past. These past few months, maybe even these past few years that we've been going through this time of COVID, maybe that's kind of been a, a period of drifting for you. And, and you would say, I just, I don't even feel like I can come back to the Lord after these last couple of years. I've been away for so long. I haven't been walking with him. I haven't had that intimate fellowship with him. Well, I hope you will hear today the Lord say to you, I have always loved you. Return to me, and I will return to you. you. You can have that close fellowship that you had with me before. You can sense that love again. You can sense that peace again. I can take you to places, and I want to take you to places in your walk with me that you've never been before. But it starts with returning to the Lord. That was the invitation that the people of God in Malachi's day needed so badly. The invitation to return because at this point in time, they were pretty far away from God. And that's the second message that God had for his people through Malachi. It was about the sinful lifestyle that they had been living. And so God was saying to them in church, God is saying to us, not only I love you, but also I see you. I, I see you, I, I see the way that you are living, I see what you are doing, and it does not honor me. And honestly, what made their sin and what makes even our sin today so ugly and, and so dark is that it is set against the beautiful backdrop of God's amazing love that never gives up on, on us. And yet, in spite of that love that he has for us, we have still sinned against the Lord. The book of Malachi is organized around six speeches that God makes to his people. We've already seen the first speech 
about the love of God in verses two through five. The second speech is the longest in the book. It starts in verse six of chapter two, and it goes all the way to chapter two, verse nine. And the target of it are the spiritual leaders, the priests of Israel, who were supposed to be leading the people of God in worship, but were really leading them astray. And so as we study this speech to the priests, here's the first thing that we need to understand. Just like God saw them, God also sees us when we dishonor him. In verse 6, and this is in chapter 1, right after the Lord talks about how he is our loving father who never stops loving us, he says this, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts to the priests who despise my name? Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? He was saying, normally a son will honor their father. Normally, a servant will obey their master, but you haven't been honoring me and you haven't been obeying me. In fact, he says to these priests, you have been despising my name. The word for despise there is the same word that's used in the story of Jacob and Esau when the Bible says Esau despised his birthright. That he treated it like it was nothing and he gave it away to his brother Jacob for nothing more, if you remember the story, than a little bowl of soup. And God is saying to these priests, that's the way you're treating me. That's the way you're treating my glory, the way you're treating my honor. You're despising my name. And in verse 7, he starts to list out the ways that they were dishonoring him. He says, you're dishonoring me because you're offering defiled food on my altar. And he goes on to explain what that means. You see, in the law of God, there were laws in place about the kinds of sacrifices that could be offered. And to sum it up, the kinds of sacrifices that could be offered were unblemished sacrifices. We know why that is. Because all of those sacrifices were meant to point us forward to the sacrifice that was to come, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our perfect, unblemished sacrifice. And yet the priest in Malachi's day didn't care about any of that. And so they were offering up any animal they could find. They were offering up the blind and the lame and the sick, whatever. It didn't matter. And in verse 8, God says, well, how about you try offering those animals to your Persian governor and see what he thinks about that? He wouldn't accept that kind of offering either. And yet you have the audacity to offer that kind of an offering to the king of the universe who's worthy of your praise. And so we see in verse 13, the priests actually saying, what a weariness all of this is. They were just tired of it all. They didn't want to do it anymore. They didn't want to offer the sacrifice. They didn't want to worship the Lord. They didn't want to follow his law. They had grown lax and indifferent and apathetic. And really what they were doing was they weren't giving to the Lord their best. They were giving the Lord their leftovers. You know, a couple years ago, Megan and I were out at a sushi restaurant with a few of our close friends and we ordered an appetizer. It was edamame. How many of y'all have ever had had that, right? It's pretty good, right? Soybeans, and they come in the pods, right? And you kind of put it all in your mouth, you kind of chew it, you know, and, and then you discard the rest, you know, in the discard bowl. And I, I'd never really had it before, and, and so I was eating it, and I was just eating one after the next. And then, you know, then one of my friends kind of pointed out, you know, the bowl that I had been getting my edamame out of. And they kind of pointed out to me that it wasn't actually the clean bowl, it wasn't actually the fresh bowl, it was the discard bowl. 
and I was putting in my mouth what had already been sucked on by every other single person that was at the table. It was disgusting. It was gross. And when it comes to edamame, right, you really don't want to be eating the leftovers, do you? And you know what? God doesn't want to be eating our leftovers either. God doesn't want us to be giving Him our second best. After we've given all of our energy and all of our effort and all of our time and all of our heart and all of our passion to something else, He doesn't want us to come and then give Him whatever is left at the end. He wants us to give Him our very best. Because He's the King of kings who is worthy to be praised from the time the sun comes up to when it goes down. But these priests weren't doing that. They were not giving God their best. And so God has some pretty strong words for them. If you've read this letter before, you know that. In chapter 2, verse 3, he tells them he's going to rub something all over their faces, which I'll just leave it at. None of us would want that rubbed on our faces. And back in chapter 1, in verse 10, he basically tells them, I wish one of you would just shut the doors to the church. Because I'd actually prefer that to what you're doing right now. Because right now you're just going through the motions. Right now your heart isn't actually in it. What they were doing was dishonoring the name of the Lord. And Christian, let me ask you right now in your life, are you honoring or dishonoring the name of the Lord? Is there any area of your life right now where you are dishonoring Him? Any area where you're giving Him less than your best? any area where you've just kind of checked out. And if so, God is calling you and calling me, saying, return to me and I'll return to you. I, I wish, we may all wish, that that was the only area that Malachi pointed out in this book, but it is not. And he continues in chapter 2, verse 10, by launching into a whole new area. He says, God also sees it, not only when we dishonor him, but also when we cheat on him when we are unfaithful to him. Throughout the Bible, God's relationship with his people is compared to marriage. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's compared to a marriage between a groom and a bride. And spiritual unfaithfulness is compared to adultery. We saw that earlier in this series in the book of Hosea, where Gomer's sin against Hosea was described in that way. Well, in chapter 2, starting in verse 10, God says through his prophet Malachi that his people were being unfaithful to him again in their generation. And part of the way they were being unfaithful to the Lord is that they were going out and marrying foreign women, which was against God's law, women who did not worship the Lord God, but instead worshiped idols. And so they were bringing idolatry into their homes and into their families and into the covenant community of God. And, and that isn't all. In fact, in verse 13 of chapter 2, God says, and there's a second thing that you're doing that I see that I don't like. The Lord told them, speaking to the men of Israel. He said, the reason why I'm not accepting your sacrifices and your offerings anymore is because of the way that you're treating the wives of your youth. And apparently, a lot of men in Israel were divorcing their Jewish wives that they had married when they were both young. And when they got older, they were shipping them out for a younger model, for a foreign model that did not worship the one true God of Israel. And God says, I see that. God says, I'm a witness against that. And in verse 15, Malachi 
speaking of their marriages, said, did he not make them one? He's going all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 when God first instituted the covenant of marriage and said a man leaves his father and his mother. He's joined to his wife and the two become one flesh. You know, that's the same thing Jesus said. When Jesus was asked about marriage, you remember that he went all the way back to Genesis 2 as well. This is what he said in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Jesus says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And then back in Malachi in chapter 2 and verse 16, God lets them know and he lets us know in no uncertain terms how he feels about divorce. This is what it says. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. If you're here today, friend, and you have a divorce in your background, I, I pray that you would not interpret those words, I hate divorce, to mean I hate you. Because as we already said, God loves you. And God loves all of us. And, and you know, I'm thankful that the church was never intended to be a hotel for perfect saints because if it was, none of us would be here, right? But the church is meant to be a hospital for sinners, which we all are. And so I pray in this place you would feel the love of God no matter what has happened in your past. And a church that wants to come alongside you and help you from this point forward to honor the Lord, whatever that looks like in your life. But you know, with that said, we also cannot shy away from what God says here in his word about divorce. Now, the reason why he says he hates divorce, at least one of the reasons, is because he loves you and he loves me. He hates divorce because he loves people. He loves husbands and he loves wives and he loves children who are affected as well. He loves families. The family was his idea. This is not a whole sermon on the subject of divorce, so we just have a moment to spend on this. And, and, and I know there are exceptions in the New Testament of biblically allowable divorces in the case of sexual immorality, in the case of desertion of an unbelieving spouse, and, and all of that. But listen, in general, we need to be clear in the church about what God says about the subject of divorce. In the church, divorce can never be seen as an acceptable alternative to staying married. It can never be seen as an option to consider when things get hard or when we're not quite as happy as we would wish. The world will say what it wants to say, but we who believe in the Word of God cannot speak of divorce in that way when we have a verse like this in our Bible. When we have a Lord that we worship who says very clearly, I hate it. He did not like what they were doing. He did not like that then they were going out and marrying unbelievers. Malachi, after that topic, keeps the train going of topics that nobody wants to talk about in church. And so after talking about the subject of divorce, he moves on to the subject of money. All right, are we ready for that? God says he also sees it when we rob him in verses 8 through 10. We won't spend long here, but the people of God in Malachi's day were guilty of not giving their tithes or their offerings to the Lord. Of course, the Lord owns it all. And he said, what you're doing is tantamount to robbing me. It's literally stealing what belongs to me. Look at what he says in verses 8 through 10. He says, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. 
But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. What a beautiful promise that is. Now, listen, I understand that the church today is different than the temple back then. I don't believe that Micah was talking about us in this place right here when he said, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. I understand that we are under grace and not under law. And I've heard many people say, well, you know what? Since I'm not under law anymore, but I'm under grace, well, that means I don't need to give anything at all. I don't need to give a tithe. I don't need to give an offering. I don't need to give anything because I haven't been commanded to do that and I'm under grace. Well, again, we don't have long to spend here, but I would just simply reply to that by saying, if, if the law in the Old Testament required the people of God to give 10% to the Lord, should the wonderful grace of God that we have experienced at the cross lead us to give less than that or more than that? I, I believe that when the grace of God has touched our heart, He's going to produce in us a desire, a want to give to the things of the Lord. And that's why I believe for the New Testament Christian, giving a tithe, giving a offering of 10% is, is really kind of a place to start. I, I really compare it to putting training wheels on a bike when you're trying to teach you know, a young child how to ride their bike, right? That's, that's a place to start. But I believe as we grow in our walk with the Lord, he's going to lead us to want to do even more than that. Not only giving through the local church, but giving to other kingdom priorities, giving to missionaries and, and the work of the Bible being translated and passed around the world. Uh, things like we're doing and giving to those who are fleeing for refuge from Ukraine, things like this that, that we give to kingdom causes because God has touched our hearts by his grace. And you know what? The reality is that it's the same today as it was then. When the Lord tells us to give something away, no matter what the amount is, no matter what the percentage is, when the Lord has clearly said to give something away and we hold on to that with clenched fists, we are also guilty of stealing from the Lord. Because it all belongs to Him. And if He said to give it, we need to give it and not hold on to it. You know, as I back up and as I look at the book of Malachi as a whole, I want you to think with me about this. Did the Lord already know all of these areas of sin that His people were involved in when he wrote this letter. Do you already know that? Absolutely. From the very beginning, from before this book was written, right? He already knew everything that they were doing, all of this sin that we've just talked about, and yet he still chose to start this letter with the words, I have always loved you. It reminds me of what Paul said in Romans 5 in verse 8, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Yes, we are sinners. Yes, our sin is ugly, particularly ugly in light of God's great, great love, but his love is greater still. His love and mercy is still greater than all of our sin. And, and that's why the final chapters of Malachi remind us of the story of the whole Bible. 
the story of what our loving God has done in spite of our sin, that he did something about our sin. And that's why the final message in this book we need to hear today, not only I love you, not only I see you, but also I'm coming. That's what the book of Malachi is about. And how beautiful is it that in the last book of the Old Testament, the plan of God to save sinners like us is so clearly on display, and it involves sending someone to us. In fact, in these last two chapters, we read about two special people that God was going to send to us. We read about them in Malachi 3 verse 1, and then we read about them again in the final verses of chapter 4. But first, look at chapter 3, verse 1 with me, if you would. This is what the Word of God says. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So the verse starts out, behold, I send my messenger. Now, that word messenger is a play off of Malachi's name. Malachi's name means the Lord's messenger. But he wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about another messenger who was going to come to prepare the way for the Lord. Isaiah speaks about this person as well, that he would come and make a straight path for the Lord to walk behind. And the New Testament tells us very clearly who this messenger was, and it is John the Baptist. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But there's another messenger in verse 1 of chapter 3. Because as you read on in that verse, you read about this other messenger of the covenant who is the Lord himself. This is not John the Baptist. This is Jesus Christ. And so to be clear, in this one verse, in Malachi 3, 1a, in the beginning of that verse is John the Baptist. But in Malachi 3, verse 1b, in the second part of that verse, it is Jesus Christ. And notice that it says that the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. When I read that, I, my mind went to a story that we often read at Christmas time. The story of an old man named Simeon. If you remember his story, he was standing in the temple. The Lord had told him, you're not going to die until you see the Lord's Messiah. And then one day, a young couple walks in with a baby in their arms. And Simeon is able to hold that child in his hands. And he says, now I can go in peace because my eyes have seen the Lord's anointed. The Lord came suddenly to his temple. And then I think about later in Jesus' life as an adult when he took that rope of cords and he came into the temple. And he drove out the money changers and he said, you've made this a den of thieves. And it was supposed to be a house of prayer. The Lord came suddenly to his temple. Well, you know, in Malachi 3 and 4, shows us that when the Lord comes again on that final day of judgment, how you experience that as an individual has everything to do with what your relationship with God is like. And it says very clearly here that if you're a person who has arrogantly said, I don't need the Lord, I don't need the Lord's salvation, and, and wickedness has just said, I'm going to live however I want to live. Well, well, what it says here is that when the Lord comes back on that final day, he will come back as a fire that will burn up the stubble in his judgment. But then he says to those who are believers, to those whose names are written down in the book of remembrance, those who have honored the Lord, who have followed the Lord. He says, I will come, but I won't come with a destroying fire. I will come with a purifying fire. 
I will come with a cleansing fire. He says he will come like the sun breaking through the clouds. When we turn the page to Malachi chapter 4, we hear again about the coming of John the Baptist, the coming of the Lord Jesus. In verse 5 of chapter 4, we read the words, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Elijah the prophet. You know, based on some other scripture, there are some who believe that there will be another Elijah-like prophet who will come in the latter days. But we know that at least a partial fulfillment of this prophecy came with John the Baptist coming because Jesus told us that John the Baptist was Elijah who was to come. John the Baptist dressed like Elijah. John the Baptist had a ministry that was very much like Elijah. And I think it is so awesome that we read this word at the very end, the very last couple verses of the Old Testament about John the Baptist coming. And then we turn the page to the New Testament Matthew chapter 3, and we read a story about this man, this weird, strange man who's wearing camel's hair and eating locusts, almost like discarded edamame, maybe even worse. (laughs) And he's out in the wilderness, and he's preaching a message that is the same message as the book of Malachi. Get ready. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the kingdom of heaven was at hand because the king of kings was at hand. And the last chapter of the Old Testament talks about him too. Look in chapter 4, verse 2, beautiful words. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. The son of righteousness with healing in his wings. This is the only place in the Bible where that whole expression is found. And yet that is who Jesus is to us. He's the son of righteousness. He's the one who said to us, I am the light of the world. And if you walk with me, you walk in the light, not in the dark. And I love how it says with healing in his wings. You know, that word wings in the Hebrew, it can literally mean wings, like the wings of the angelic creatures in heaven. But you know, that word wings can also be translated to mean the fringe or the hem of a garment. You remember the story of the woman who had the flow of blood for 12 years and she went to every doctor in town and nobody could heal her. But she saw Jesus one day walking in the crowd ahead of her and she thought to herself in faith, if I can just get close enough to him to reach out my hands and even just touch the edge of his garment, I'll be healed. And of course she did. And in the moment she touched his garment, the Bible says the flow of blood stopped the son of righteousness who came with healing in his wings. The church, of course, he's already come, hasn't he? He's already been here. And yet, like I said at the beginning, the message we read at the end of the New Testament is the same as the message we read at the end of the Old Testament because the very last chapter of the whole Bible, Revelation 22, this is what Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. That's how the Bible ends. He's coming again, friends. He's coming quickly. He's going to come suddenly, unexpectedly. The Bible says he will come like a thief in the night. 
What does that mean? It means that we always have to be ready for his coming because he could come at any time. And so here's the question that the book of Malachi ultimately asks us to answer. Here it is. Are you ready for Jesus to come again? And I would ask that every one of you in this room, those watching online, those listening on the radio right now, that you would ask yourself that question. Am I ready for Jesus to come again if he were to come this afternoon? And friend, if you don't yet know Christ, if you haven't yet trusted him as your savior, you can trust in him today. You can receive his forgiveness today. Your name can be written down in the book of life today if you'd open your heart and receive his love into your life. And so in a minute, as we sing this song, I'm going to invite you, if that's you, to come and speak with me, one of the other pastors, and just simply say that I need to receive Christ in my life today. Maybe you're already a believer. You know your name is written down in the book of life. But maybe you would say, you know what? As we study the book of Malachi today, I realize I don't think I'm really ready for him to come yet because there's some things in my life that are not honoring him. And I don't want him to come with my life like this. I hope he waits at least a little bit so I can get that right. So that when he comes, he'll find me living a life that honors him in every area. And if that's you, friend, you can take whatever it is that God has kind of put his finger on in your life today. And as we sing, maybe just take a minute and pray where you are. Or come up to the altar and just give that to the Lord. Confess that to the Lord. And say, God, give me grace to live for you. I want to be ready when that trumpet sounds. Let's stand together. Let's sing. And you come. God is speaking to you.